All right, you guys can sit down. Good morning. Whew, I already asked you how you're doing today. It sounds like you're doing great. Um, for those of you that have met me, I'm Brian Kent. Uh, I attend here with my wife and kids. Um, I have the honor of volunteering here. I, I get to lead worship uh, as well here, just like Tyler does. I, I get the chance to be part of our preaching team. And uh, with Tyler out um, on a well-deserved uh, vacation with his wife, um, I'm, I'm honored that he asked me to answer the last two questions of the big question series, um, which is awesome. I hope you guys have been enjoying it. And uh, although I don't stand up here as, as a CTK employed pastor giving you the official CTK answer on these questions, um, uh, I'm thankful that I get to share a bit about myself and, and my personal belief on one of the questions, um, as well as spend some time with you in scripture on these questions um, to see what we can learn from there. So and I think once the, as we go through the questions, um, you'll get to see why, why uh, it makes sense for me to share and, and not to... Uh, Anyways, we'll get there. So, anyways, as we wrap up the big question series with our last two questions, um, I, I want to, um, first off, to say I, I love the answers that Tyler gave to the first four questions. If you weren't here last Sunday or the Sunday before, I encourage you to go back and watch those. But uh, in addition to that, though, I, I want to encourage you that, that you know, because we have a big faith, and there's a lot of big questions with that. I mean, the, the Bible itself is a big book, and there's a lot in there. And as we kind of wrap up this last week here, um, that doesn't mean that it's the end of big questions. Um, so I just want to encourage you that whether you've thought of one in the past few weeks, whether you had one already that you decided, hey, I don't want to send that in, or maybe you have one in the coming weeks, please keep asking those questions. Whether, whether that question is being asked in your small group to a personal mentor or, or a Christian brother and sister, um, or maybe it's, it's to Tyler directly, whether you're going up to him and shaking his hand and asking it, sending him an email, uh, but even myself or, or, or so many others in this congregation, I just want to encourage you, um, let's not wait until we do the big question series next year for you to ask the question that you are thinking about, all right? All right, cool. So, um, yeah, so before we go into today's first question, um, it, it is a little bit of not directly related, but but uh, uh, we had a big thing that happened this week, um, and, and they are connected. And uh, with with uh, the overturning of, of the original uh, verdict from Roe versus Wade, and uh, first off, I, th I think CTK, um, here we are, I think we can celebrate um, just the vast amount of saved lives um, that are going to take place from that. Um, and... Uh, I know that, that uh, that's probably been on your heart a lot this week. You've probably been looking at it in the news, thinking a lot. Um, and I've been, I've been reading about that and thinking about it as well and, and, and celebrating with you. Um, but I also have been feeling convicted. Um, and, and I just want to share with you my conviction, and we're going to kind of move on. Just the thing that's in my head. Um, in my life, it's been easy for me to make the mistake um, of assuming that abortion is an issue of our, our culture and for the most part, people outside of the church, kind of a, oh man, that person over there that I don't, I don't know, or I, I'll be honest, I kind of have this image of a person in my mind who, who uh, that would be there. Um, but then I saw a survey this week um, that found that uh, for, for women who've had abortions, 70% claim that they were Christians. And 43% of them were attending church at least monthly at the time of their abortion. And so I think that where we stand now today, and I know each state is, is stands in a different spot, we need to remember that that abortion, that single mothers being pregnant, that everything that goes with that, it is not 
something that hey we're christians we're good like we're, we're all perfect um but this right here man the fact that 43 percent of women that had an abortion went to church at least once a month i think that for us we need to remember that we need to be ready to love and care for and be building relationships with those in the church and outside the church as well starting today not, not waiting for that moment but being now um and so i just want to encourage you in that because that, that hit my heart i was just like oh man like I need to make sure I don't think about this as the uh, people over there thing. Um, that's, that's the thing in my own life. And so, um, anyways, thanks for letting me share that. Um, and you're like, man, Brian's getting personal today. Guess what? I'm going to get more personal. Um, but uh, we're going to jump into our first question today. And the first question today is, um, is the age of accountability biblical? Um, and so I, I'm going to start off and answering this question. We're not, actually not going to jump into the question, the question itself yet, but we're going to talk about salvation first, um, because that is what this question has to deal with. So um, it's about br God bringing his people to a place of spending eternal life with him in heaven, being in relationship with him, being saved from sin, right? And John 3, 16 tells us, For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And side note, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I, I didn't put it in the notes. I apologize. This passage is well known um, because in just a few words, it gives us a message of hope um, that looks at probably one of the most simple explanations of the gospel that we find in the Bible. Uh, the passage is so powerful um, in what it says to you that, that, that those who are broken mess up the guilty sinners who we are, who we've been. Um, we've done our fair share of wrong in our life, and we are able to be saved from eternal punishment that we deserve, and instead have eternal life if we believe in Jesus. And so many of us have experienced that. Amen. I, I, I'm so thankful for that. But if we keep reading in those verses, it goes a little bit more in detail. In John 3, 18, it says, Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the Son, or the one and only Son of God. And we read this verse and we look around and we think, you know, for me, it's like, man, I want to I share that good news. I want to make sure that, that in my life that, that everyone that I know knows who Jesus is, knows what Jesus has done for my life. And, and I want to make sure that they've heard and understood that message. Okay? And Jesus himself says, right, let anyone who has ears listen. And I think we can, we can assume that that just means not only ears, but the ability to comprehend, right? I don't think that Jesus is saying, oh, you don't have ears, you can't hear the word of God, right? No, it's those who, who can hear it, who can read it, who can comprehend it. But what about a small child who is still simple in mind? Maybe two or three years old. Maybe, maybe even maybe even you're thinking like, hey, my kids are eight and nine, and, and they're, they're pretty simple in mind, so, you know, who knows? Or, or, or what about the baby? The baby who, who really all they can comprehend is, is playing and eating, crying, sleeping. Or maybe the newborn where, where playing is, is not even a thing yet. It's just cry, sleep, eat, mama gives comfort, that's it. What about, what about the baby that was, never, that was never alive? What about the, the, and there's a whole spectrum of that. What, if, what about the baby who, who outside of the womb didn't have a chance to be alive? So the age of accountability is, is, is about those people who, who we can't say, you know, hey, you had the chance to believe. Those people who are like, what about those who, who didn't have ears to hear? Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary defines it as the, the, the age of accountability is the age at which God holds children accountable for their sins. 
When persons come to this point, they face the inevitability of divine judgment, and they fail to repent and believe the gospel. Um, I, I put it into what I thought was a little bit simpler terms, um, and I just said those who die prior to a certain age or understanding would essentially the age of accountability says that they would not be condemned and would have eternal life. Okay, so that's what the age of accountability says. Is hey, you know, um, Catholics, I think it's it's eight years old, and and there's there's different traditions that have actually assigned an age, but it's basically saying hey. This person is too young to have understood and believed the gospel, um, so they are by their age saved. That's what the uh, age of accountability is. We're going to go through, we're going to look at what scripture says about this. We're going to dig into it, but, uh, but before we do that, um, if you'll have me, I'd like to share a little bit about my own life. Um, a story about the, how the age of accountability has been a question in my heart, okay? Um, and, I, and I'm not sharing this story to to qualify myself as an expert or, or an authority on this issue. Um, I know that other people in here have experienced a lot of different things. Um, the reason that I'm here is, is because the question about our youngest, we're asking about the salvation of children, babies that have passed, um, is a question that is a deeply personal one. And although I can't understand the pain that you have, whether it's, it's been directly in your own life or people you know, um, I, I want to tell this story so that you can know that I stand beside you with this question. And asking this question, I want you to know that, okay, like Brian's really asking this question. So, and, and I'm going to be honest, I've I got tissues. There's tissue there. There's tissue in the windowsills. I know you guys are like, man, we're, we're getting into a tough one today. Um, and if you need to, you know, if you're like, oh, man, I'm a crier, um, I, I get to grab some tissues. I don't, I don't know if I'm over-prefacing this, but... Uh, on to my story. So, when I was 21 years old, I played in a band. I played rock and roll music because that's cool, right? Um, I served the church in a bunch of different ways with, with youth, with music. I was attending regularly. I was enjoying life, living in the big city of Bellingham, Washington. Lived in an apartment with, with my buddy from high school. I worked at Little Caesars Pizza. I was a shift manager. I hung out with my friends a lot. I still visited my parents most weeks, so I was, I was a pretty good kid um, at that age. And uh, I'd just gotten back to, together with my girlfriend for like the third time in less than a year, so it was, you know, rocky, but I was 21, you know, that's how those go. And uh, my girlfriend and I, despite our rocky relationship, we acted against the will of God, and we had premarital sex. And in November of 2009, Whew, I won't get too emotional early. I'll get emotional later. We, uh, we found out we were going to be parents. And with uh, the massive news, I did what any sane 21-year-old would do. Within less than a month of learning the news, I broke up with my girlfriend. I quit my job, and I kept playing in my band because that was, that was priority, right? Right? Um, I was excited. I was freaked out. I was, I was happy. Um... But I was, I was totally lost as well. Um, and, and with the, the birth of my, my first child, some 30 weeks away, uh, I had no idea what to do. I couldn't describe if I was more worried about what people were thinking of me. I was a youth leader. I was a worship guy. I was the worship guy that got his girlfriend pregnant. Um, or if I was more worried about the fact that I didn't have a job or stable ground to stand on. 
But what I didn't worry about, though, was, was whether or not I wanted to be a dad. Um, I knew I wanted to be a dad. I had known since high school I wanted to be a dad. I was, I was you know, probably scared some girls that I liked in high school away because I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a dad someday. It's going to be great. I was ready to talk about that as a teenager. I was just pumped. I was excited. So, so I, I knew. I was like, this is going to be good. And uh, when we went in for our first appointment, um, hear the baby's heartbeat. Um, man, my heart just, oh, it stopped. Because when I heard that heartbeat, it was like, there is life that I have been blessed to help create. And God had chosen to create that life through this woman and I. And for the first time of many times, I heard that beating heart. And it was the greatest, greatest moment of my life at that point. And I love going, I love going to the ultrasounds, don't get me wrong. I love the tiny movements that, that, that the baby would make. But the, the heartbeat was like, I don't know, something about it was the most special for me. And as time ticked on, the ground under my feet started to get a little bit more solid. I, I, I went and got a new job um, with 26 weeks to go until baby came. My uh, future child's mother and I, we got back together. We, we worked things out. We decided we were going to get married. And uh, we got married when she was 26 or 28 weeks pregnant. We were, we were ecstatic. Uh, my band split up, so uh, the, that priority shifted, and, and I actually finally started saying, no, I'm, I'm going to start focusing on my family. Um, I, I, was, I was totally ready to start growing up a little bit there. And my family was a weird thing to say back then. I mean, I, I was never opposed to the idea of being able to say that at a young age, but it came, it came pretty quick. <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't like, oh, I've been dating this girl since high school. It's great. I, it was just like, oh, man. My family just became a thing. And, uh, but I was, I was still pretty immature. Um, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I might have forgot to tell my boss at, at my now newest job that I was getting married, and he put me on the schedule that day, and I said, oh, hey, man, I'm, I'm getting married this Saturday. Can I actually have the day off? Um, the day of my wedding, I, I, I may have realized that I hadn't gotten a tie yet, so me and a buddy drove me to Macy's bought my tie on, on the way to the wedding. So I, I was, I was, I was fully, I was, I was ready to be a dad, but I was fully still at this point now, 22 years old. I was married. I was optimistic. I was painfully disorganized, a professional procrastinator, but I was assumed to be dad. And entering the 32nd week of pregnancy, we were told that we were entering into the safe zone. Even if we went into labor now, that the baby was, had a high probability of surviving. And I'd never really thought about, about miscarriages, and, and, and that's something that I, I now have experienced in my life as well. Um, but frankly, a baby not surviving hadn't really crossed my mind. I was just relieved that the first time I ever really thought about it was being told that we had made it through the most risky parts. I was like, oh, that's a thing? Oh, but we're past it. Oh, great, this is good. And as the, the pregnancy eh, neared the due date, estimated 40-week mark, the excitement of the unknown grew. Found out we were having a little girl. We, we gave her a name, and we were informed at a checkup uh, the procedures for inducing labor. You know, because they said, hey, you know, at 40 weeks, do you want to be induced at 40 weeks? Do you want to, you know, there's two weeks after you can wait and hopefully go into labor naturally. We said, hey, you know, we're, we're going to wait as long as we can. We're going to go to that 42 weeks, and uh, if we get there, we'll, we'll induce naturally. And at 42 weeks, we went in for the induction. Baby, baby didn't want to come on time. That was okay. We went in. And uh, the baby's heartbeat was strong. The ultrasound from a few days before was great. Everything was positive. Baby was wiggling, moving. The day had come. I was going to hold my daughter. I was going to become a dad. And the induction went as planned. Everything went great. They sent us home. They said, hey, go start the labor at home. And uh, within a couple hours, we were back in the delivery room. 
And after nine hours of labor, shifting positions, checking heartbeats, and painful contractions, my firstborn child Mara Rose Kent was born on July 26, around 1 a.m. My first few moments were so good. We got to meet our little girl. But after a few seconds, someone in the room noticed she wasn't cried yet. You see, babies cry when they cry when they're born. That's telling you that they're breathing. And so despite the hard work, the careful, urgent care of the individuals in the room, it was about an hour later I was informed that she never started crying. I was standing in the hallway the hospital that I didn't really know where I was. The doctor I'd never met came and he said, I'm so sorry, but she's not going to make it. Despite the strong heartbeat that she'd had, and even the heartbeat that continued after she was born, she didn't take that breath. My little girl, my daughter, God's creation, had already passed when it seemed like she was just arriving on earth. So for a few hours following, they allowed us to bring our family into a specially selected room so we could have a few minutes with her. We got to hold her. We got to share her with our family and close friends. They even had a photographer come and take a picture of her for us. And um, we got those few hours. But this despite the, the sadness of the pain of that day, I want you guys to know that that was one of the greatest days of my life. Because that was a day that I got, even just for a few hours, I got to hold my little girl. But every day on earth has to end eventually. And as that one did, we, we had to leave the hospital and we had to go home and and it was just me, my wife. Oh. Before I go any further, I want to thank you for letting me share that story. I've never, I've never shared that story publicly. Um, so I thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but the story of my family doesn't end there, though. Um, as my life continued from that day, the Lord... A few years later brought me my daughter Eden into my life just just about two years later when Eden was five years old um, I was introduced to my now wife and best friend Jesse who you guys a lot of you know <clears throat> and as we said our wedding vows three years ago um, I got two more sons I got two stepsons and last year the Lord blessed us with our son Heath but I thought about Mara every day and I don't know when I first started thinking about the age of accountability. Um, the simple fact that, that one asks a hard truth, hard truths are tough. And I'm, I'm going to be honest, I just, I just didn't think about it for years. Um, 
but those are the type of things that we, we eventually we turn to the Bible for. Um, and so I want, I want to go with you to Scripture now to spend some time with the Lord, to spend some time with what He's written so that we can engage with Him and hear what His Word says. And as we look at Scripture, there's, there's a few different ways that, that what is being taught in the Word presents itself. Um, first, Scripture sometimes is, is explicitly clear about things. Um, like, you know, murder being a sin, that's, that one's real clear. That Jesus came and died to save our sins, that one's real clear. And there's other things in Scripture, although maybe they're not explicitly said or explained, um, but they're clearly present. Um, things like, uh, as we're going to talk about later, the balance of God's foreknowledge and human will. Um, the Old Testament writings that point to Christ. But there are also those things in Scripture which, which God does not give us a clear answer on. And, and today, I'll be honest, the age of accountability is one of those things. But I'm so thankful I get to share this story because I want you to know that, that even though we're not going to have a clear answer of, hey, this and that, great, you don't need to worry about it. As someone who has thought a lot about this question, um, I'm so thankful for what, what the Word of God has to say. So, um, the first place that I, I, I like to look, and, and what was for me probably the first encouragement um, when thinking about those children who have passed is, uh, is to look at the man whom they're, with whom their destiny lies, and that's Jesus. Because this topic, we are trusting Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who comes and who saves. So what was Jesus like with children? In Matthew 19, verses 13 and 14, in the midst of Jesus' busy ministry and so many things going on, we see how much of a priority he took. It says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked him. And you think about it here, right? Jesus had a lot of things to do. He was healing people. He was preaching the gospel. So the disciples were probably like, Hey, Jesus, you've got a job to do. You're doing all this stuff. We don't have time to play with and hang out with the kids. And Jesus said, Leave the little children alone. And don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Guys, Jesus loves children. And when he was on earth, he loved spending time with them. And he loves having them part of his kingdom. He said, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And in scripture, when I look at that, I'm like, that's, that's the man that I get to trust all of my kids with. In scripture, we see a, a pretty main biblical feature, uh, not feature, figure, um, who also lost their child at infancy. Um, it's David, David's first son with Bathsheba. You, you probably know this, the story of David and Bathsheba, um, but it's, you know, I think sometimes we forget the heart, some of the, the tougher things in, in emotion sense, but, but that, that, baby, that baby died. And, and Jesus, or, sorry, David talks later, and he says, but now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He's aware that, hey, you know what? My, my baby's gone. I can't bring my baby back. But he says then, I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. It appears that David is stating here that there is nothing that he can do to bring his son back to this world, but he will go to him someday. And although, again, this isn't explicitly said, I think that we can interpret this as him going to him, the going to him referring to David as meeting him in heaven after David's own death. But as we go through this, we, we, we can't 
ignore parts of scripture because this is a tough one to talk about. And there are some passages too that, that, that kind of say, hey, we have to, we have, to have a, an open mind on this. Psalm 58.3 says, the wicked go astray from the womb, liars wander from birth. 51.5 says, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. This question is asked, and it's tough because when we look at Scripture, we know that our sinful nature that has condemned us to death is not age-specific. The wages of sin are not subject to our chance to hear the gospel. Even the smallest of us, we are all deserving of condemnation at birth and at our death. So when I look at both those passages, leaving open a possible argument for condemnation who who, some of whom have passed away as infants and babies, born and unborn, and as well as an argument for them being saved. When I say, hey, you know what, we're, we're starting to see that, that there is potentially an argument for that. I, uh, I remind myself of this. My God is good, and what he says about himself, if what he says about himself is true in Scripture, I believe that when I arrive in heaven, I will not ask for an explanation of his actions. I will not ask God to justify what he has done. If I go to heaven and if what he says in scripture is right, I will rejoice and only rejoice. No matter what actions he's done. But we're not going to stop there. We're going we're to keep going. Because we must not forget that salvation is of the Lord. Think of the thief on the cross. It was only minutes of belief for him. And we don't, we don't really know about his life. We know that he was a criminal we can assume that he was probably not a, a good dude. Um, I mean, he's, he's being crucified with Jesus, and, and Scripture made very clear that Jesus was crucified with sinners, with criminals. Yet, the power of salvation from Jesus Christ saved that guy. He had maybe minutes of belief. We don't know when the, that criminal died. Maybe it was an hour, maybe it was a longer, but we know that it was not long that he believed, and he Jesus said, you will be with me in heaven that day. So if that same God who can save that criminal with those few minutes left, I believe that he can use that same power to bring salvation to a child or to a baby. Because in my opinion, even even to an unborn child, I believe my God is powerful. And if salvation is of the Lord, just that we saw that we were born as sinners, we see that the saving work of God can also be done before birth. And so I've got two more verses that are amazing verses and so encouraging. The first is about John the Baptist. Luke 1 15 says, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And in 2 Timothy it says, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Obviously, knowing the sacred scripture is not having it memorized and knowing it word for word, right? But we know that, that the word of God is powerful. It is true. His spirit works through it. And so we have those verses as well. And, and this is possible. The reason this is possible, though, is because as we see in Ephesians 2.8, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. If faith was ours to earn, and, and, and God said, whoo, I hope you do it right. I'm not going to use any of my powers in it. Yeah, we would be in trouble. And so would those who are below the supposed age of accountability. So with all that... I'll, I'll, I tell you guys today with, with full confidence, I believe that my daughter is in heaven. David's words are the same words that I uttered and believed in my heart before I ever read them. 
my heart was saying the same thing that David said. Going back to that, he said, he said, you know, even though you will not come to me someday, I will go to you. I, I can't explain it, but I knew that. And so I believe that because in the moments and the years immediately following that, those were my heart. And although scripture doesn't give a clear declaration for support of this belief or the other way, I believe that scripture does give reason for me to have hope. And that is because we see one, that the Holy Spirit is able to be in us before birth. Two, because um, as who we see who Jesus is, his love for children. And three, because God is sovereign and he is not limited. His saving grace, his salvation that he gives is not limited by where we are at in our life, even if that is just at birth, even if that is in the first few weeks of life that whether by choice or not, I believe that those babies that go to God has power for them. So that's, uh, that's our first question. That was a heavy one. I realized that was, that was heavy. Part of me is like, maybe we should take a water break, um, but, but we're going we're gonna to keep going on to the, the second question. Um, and, and the second question kind of keeps, keeps along the lines of, of kind of looking at God's power and God's foreknowledge. Um, so question two. If God knows every decision we make, where does free will come in? I think this is a really good question. A lot of people think it's a really good question. It's been, um, it's been asked for, for quite some time throughout the history of the church. And uh, what I want to start with here is kind of looking at Scripture for what the Bible says about three things that are represented in this question. The first is we're going to look at what the Bible says about human free will. We're going to look at what the Bible says about the foreknowledge of God. And we're going to look at how the Bible handles the idea that human will and all uh, human will and then all knowing God, can they exist simultaneously? Are they compatible? So, and actually before I go on, I'm going to, I'm going to pray. We're not going to walk all the way away from the first question. We're going to pray real quick. God, thank you. Um, thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the love that you put in our hearts that we get to be close to others, that we get to see and experience and have children as a part of our lives, God. That you bless us to be parents and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and children ourselves, and that we get to, to love on those who are young, God. And we know, Lord, that, that you are good and that you will send your son to return someday and to bring an end to all death and sadness and evil. And we thank you for that, God, and we praise you for that. But thank you, God, that we have each other today as well to stand next to each other, to realize that there are tough things in this life, but that you have chosen to bless us and encourage us through your word, but also through brothers and sisters in Christ. And I pray that we would remember that. I pray that we would bow before you and see you as our Lord and trust and know that you are good. And we thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to keep, keep going. So let's take a look at, uh, at human will. Lexham Survey of Theology defines human will as uh, the human will is our capacity for choice and action which we can exercise for good or evil. Scripture has a lot of passages that represent this. Um, we're going to look at a few each. As we go through these, we'll look at about two verses. Um, I know sometimes you're probably thinking, man, when Brian preaches, he has like 30 Bible verses, and today I kept it below 30. So um, the first passage we're going to look at is Ecclesiastes. 
Um, and it says in verse 729, only see this. I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. This passage is a great example because it speaks about human choice in direct relation to God's creation and power. And there's an important word here. It says, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, but, which uh, it, it, we, we need to see that it says God created man to be upright, but they pursued many schemes. So despite how God made man, man chose to pursue in his own, in his own ways. The Apostle Paul points this out and talks more about the human will in Ephesians 2, verses 2 to 3. He says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desire and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This passage takes, takes it even further than that first one, right? It brings in the cravings of our flesh. And I, I think for, for me... That is, that is an area of my life where I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel my own free will, and, and, and I, I sometimes hate that, right? Because I can feel that, that it is tugging me in my personal life to say, hey, let's go make this choice. Let's go do this. So when we look at that one, we, we, we clearly see that humans have a draw to good and evil, and they make decisions based on that. So those are just two passages. And of, of a lot to help us take a look that humans are able to act out of their own freedom, making decisions, having desires, thoughts that they can choose to respond to and how they respond to it. So we can confirm that the Bible speaks of humans having their own choice and freedom. Okay, But our question recognizes, right, if, there's, if God is all-knowing, how can there be free will? Our question recognizes that there's a lot more going on than a world of just randomness where people do random things and we're just like, whew, everything is out of control and chance and, and the dice is being rolled. No. We see throughout the Bible that the universe is under the control and power of its all-knowing creator, God. Well, what we'll be looking at here is God's now, his foreknowledge. And foreknowledge, in case you're like, all right, there's the big word for the day. Foreknowledge refers to the all-inclusive or, or maybe the unlimited knowledge of God. He knows from every heart and thought to each hair on our heads, God knows everything from beginning until forever. So what, what does the Bible say about this content? Okay. Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. <laughs> I, I think pretty quickly, reading that passage, we can see why this question was asked. Um, scripture isn't holding back about God's knowledge of and influence in the lives of his people. God wants us to know that he is involved. In Romans 8, 29, 30, it says, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This passage is speaking directly about those who are saved through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it, it uses words like predestined. We, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He predestined us. He called us. He justified us. So, so, so as you can see, there's sort of this like, well, okay, there's human freedom, and I'm making my own choices about good and evil, yet at the same time, God is predestining. In the book of, uh, I'm sorry, skipping ahead there. Um, so those, and those are just two points mentioned separately throughout Scripture. 
we just human wills talked about here and then and then a couple chapters later so, the sovereignty of god comes up and and then all of a sudden the lord was like oh shoot those don't match i, I don't think that's what he says no we know that's not what he says but but that's the thing right when we look at them separately it, it feels like they're in conflict feels like they're maybe not in conflict maybe they're in tension let's use the word tension and as so let's go on. There, there is a tension here. And just the same as there's tension in the question, in our minds, these theme, things seem to want to pull towards those separate realities. But if we remember that God did not make any mistakes in his word, God knows everything that he put in his word. So even though we might look at it and be like, I can't make sense of these two together sometimes, God chose all of the words that are in our Bible and how they will be presented. So let's look at the compatibility and how Scripture is okay with putting these two things close, okay? Starting in the Old Testament, we look at the story of Joseph. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He was the favorite son of his father. He had dreams. He shared them with his brothers. Um, his brothers didn't like the dreams because he essentially was saying, I had a dream that I'm going to be your boss someday. I'm going to rule over you. And, um, and so the brothers plot to kill him. They're like, we're going to kill him. We, we can't stand him. We're going to get rid of him. And they end up selling him into slavery. And this story, as you can see, it's, it's littered with, with, with human freedom, with people making their own choices. Joseph being like, well, I had this dream. I'm going to tell my brothers about it, even though it's probably going to tick him off. And the brothers saying, we don't like that. We have a craving of our flesh inside, and we're going to follow it. We're going to get rid of you. So years later, Joseph, he's made his way out of slavery. He got sold into slavery. He makes his way out of slavery. Now he's a high-ranking administrator in Egypt. And he reunites with his brothers during a great famine in the land. His brothers had made the choice to be like, we need to go and see if we can get some food from Egypt. And what he says to them totally brings together the two things we're talking about. In Genesis 5.20, he says, you planned evil against me. You, my brothers, you made a choice by your own will to plan evil against me. But God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. In that one moment there, we see so early in scripture and one of the most well-known stories that scripture says these two things are compatible we see that although brothers were contriving to do evil against their brother god was using that same event to eventually position joseph to save the lives of his family and many others with the upcoming famine we see here god planning and working as he wills while the freedom of man continues as well yet is unable to disrupt god's will in the book of Jeremiah, we go from, from, you know, we just had a story there. Now let's look at, at, at God himself affirming the compatibility of these two. In Jeremiah 29, 113, it says, For I know the plans I have for you. Okay, God is saying, I have plans for you as a believer. And this is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And then immediately he says, You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. He goes straight from saying, I have plans. My plans will take place. I may have made declarations for your well-being, not for disaster. I'm going to give you future and hope. And side note, you're going to do this. It doesn't say, and then I will make you call on me. And then I will make you pray to me. And that's not to say that, that those moments don't happen in Scripture as well. But we, we see there's, there's a balance there. We see that the Lord states his plan for his people while also pointing to their own acts in pursuing him. In the New Testament, we continue to see this played out. In John, we see an interesting example with Jesus addressing this. John 9, as he was passing by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born? 
Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. In this moment, Jesus is asked about the cause of a man's blindness. Kind of like how we're asking, like, oh, can you, can you explain to us, Lord, the cause and effect of human will and your foreknowledge, your sovereignty? And Jesus responds, and he, he doesn't respond with the cause and effect. He just responds with the purpose. He responds with that purpose, saying, this came about so that God's work might be displayed in him. We see that the blending of human responsibility acts of man being intertwined with the sovereign will of God and being understood not through cause and effect, but through the purpose of the Lord. The last example on this one here in Philippians says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay? That's pretty clear, right? Just as you have always obeyed, Work out your faith with fear and trembling. And then it says, For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his purpose. John Frame says, It is significant that Scripture often affirms divine sovereignty and human responsibility together in the same passage. It's significant because as we look at the tension of this question, we see that God was clearly okay and intentional about this tension being throughout Scripture. And, 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 and to be real... This tension doesn't—God doesn't look at Scripture and be like, oh, yeah, that one's—no, for him, he knows. He made it that way, and it all makes sense. It's our human nature that feels the tension. And even though it's a hard-to-understand nature, it's a truth about God and the world in which he made and how he made it. Now, having uh, seen this tension in Scripture, and I, and I think we haven't really answered the question yet, and I realize that. We've talked about human will. We've talked about God's foreknowledge— and we've kind of seen like, okay, those, those function together in Scripture. Um, there's a lot of explanations, though, that go beyond that. And uh, there, there's theological explanations. There's philosophical, even some scientific. Um, but I'm going to kind of bring us to a close. I'm going to present two explanations to, to how the foreknowledge of God plays out um, in relation to kind of our salvation and, and his work in our lives. Okay. And uh, I realize that this is, this is going to be the ultimate digest. It's going to be the digest of the digest version. Um, and you could read books for days. And honestly, if you're interested in this, I read a lot of books over the last few weeks. Um, I, I, literally some books about the tension between these two. Um, but I'd love to, to say, hey, check this out. This is great. Um, but before I jump into these two perspectives, I, I, you might be wondering about CTK's opinion on this. What is CTK's opinion on predestination and the foreknowledge of God and, and human free will. Um, and, and although CTK hasn't taken a specific stance on that, I want to tell you the mission is to create authentic, Christ-centered communities that love God wholeheartedly and reach out intentionally so that others experience new life in Jesus and a transforming life of discipleship. So we're, we're at CTK, we're not a part of a specific denomination. Um, we don't officially associate ourselves with any tradition um, we, we're, we're a non-denominational church. We love the Bible. We look to faithfully follow it and teach it. And I think we do a great job. I think Tyler knocks that out of the park. But the reason that I kind of add this, this preface is because at a non-denominational church, we might have people who have varying opinions on these. Um, and I love that. I'm so excited about that. I'm, I'm excited that, that today I get to come and, and say, hey, here's two things. And that I know that there are people who may say, hey, I'm right there with you, Brian. Or, hey, I'm right over here. Um, because the church... As we see, salvation is of the Lord. God works through us. And so whatever our theological preference or denomination, 
outside of, of, of the Cornerstone Foundations, we get to come together and worship. And even though you might take a topic, you know, you might say, hey, infant baptism, or hey, how do we look at the sacraments and say, hey, you know, we have different opinions here. The Lord calls us all together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So, um, and I just, I love being a part of this church for that. So there are, are uh, I'm just going to talk about kind of two ways to look at this, because I want, I want to leave with a little bit of like, okay, I feel like I got an answer for this. Um, so the first way, um, the first kind of perspective looking at predestination, um, and I don't have this in a slide, but, but uh, the quote from Travis Campbell is, when, when we look at how God knows things and how God predestines things, it says, since he foreknew the, the one would make a right use of their free will. So what essentially this is saying is, because God can look down the line of history and everything that's going to happen, and when he sees those who are going to make the right use of their free will, and the other person, maybe they're not going to, they're not going to believe, they're not going to trust, he predestined the one and condemned the other. So the idea is, okay, how does God have ultimate knowledge? How does predestination work and not compromise my free will? So the first perspective is essentially saying, because God knows everything, he knows what you're going to do. He knows what your neighbor's going to do, what everyone's going to do, whether you're going to choose to believe, whether you'll hear the gospel, and, and, and all of his own ways of looking at that. Based on that, he has predestined to say, I see that you're going to believe, that you're going to make this choice, and I'm going to come in my, by my power. I'm going to bring salvation. Okay? And I know some of you are like, Brian, like, that's tip of iceberg. Like, there's so much more you should say X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm just, I'm bringing the introduction here for you guys. So that's the first answer. Um, the second pretty, pretty commonly, um, commonly referred to or believed theological perspective is that, um, is that God has preordained all of those things. So he didn't look down the time of history and say, hey, I see that, and I'm going to come in, and, and I'm going to do my work by my power, because it is only by God's power in both of these beliefs that we are saved, because that's what Scripture says. But this one says that God preordains it. So I'll read a quote here because someone can probably someone else is putting it in better words than I am. God does not elect on the basis of forcing faith, nor does God elect on the basis of any human merit. In fact, no human action or effort or choice or disposition of any kind play a role in God's choice of election. God chooses persons unto salvation wholly from his mercy and nothing else. So do we see the difference here? One is the Lord looking and seeing and knowing and being all-powerful. And by his power, bringing salvation. And the other one is, he didn't look, he already decided. And by his mercy, he said, I'm going to preordain this person. You guys tracking with me a little bit there? I didn't make that too confusing. Um, and and uh, the one does leave a little bit more to be understood about that tension between the two. The cause and effect, there is one has more explanation and one has less. Um, but I think that both are very worthy. And the reason that I, I want to end with, with two things. The reason, one, that I chose to kind of bring this up, because I, I don't think, this is not the normal way that church goes, hey, guys, we're going to come in, and then we're going to tell you two beliefs, and, and we're going to say pick and choose. The reason that I bring this up is because you've probably noticed that sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm like, read the Bible, dig into it, ask those questions, see what the Lord has. I love this question because this question puts us in a position to know and love God and his word more, to pray, to trust in him for understanding. And so 
this question I know is a tough one. It has probably separated families. It's definitely split churches. We, we know that throughout church history. Um, it, kind of the, the Arminian versus Calvinist debate. Um, but I just want to encourage you that that is no reason to be hesitant to go and to dig into the, the big tough questions about God. Um, we are at a church... And, and Revelation twenty two seventeen tells us both the spirit and the bride say, come, let anyone who hears come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. That is the last kind of, one of the last statements of the Bible. And it does not say, let the one who did a really good job of figuring everything out in scripture come. No, it says, let the one who is thirsty come. If we are thirsty, then let us go and be thirsty in his word and say, you know what, God, this is a tough subject. And I might disagree with someone who I know or love, but I want to know you. We learn in the same way, and I didn't write down the passage for this verse, but in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That's why when we have a prayer night, the, the, the community prayer nights, it's all the churches in the community because we are one body in Christ. And so I want to encourage you in that as you look at these tough questions that start to say, hey, this church over here might say this, this church over here might say this. Don't stop asking the question. Don't stop digging into the question. Because we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Praise God for that, right? So let's end in prayer, and then Tyler's going to come up and sing one more song, um, and then we'll, we'll have a spot up here. If, if you need prayer, um, myself will be here. Stephen's going to be here. Um, we'd love to pray for you. And thanks again for letting me share my story this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. Um, God, we just thank you that we get to be here, that we get to read your word, that we get to talk about it, um, and that, that it is by your power and not our, our, our brain power or our ability to get all the answers right. Lord, there isn't a test or a quiz. You just say, if you believe in me, you are saved. God, we just thank you for that. We thank you for your son who is powerful and who is good. We pray that those who are, are hurting today, God, that you would give them the courage and strength to tell